This is the K-Pop Cast, bringing you the best sounds and ideas in K-Pop each week. I'm your host, Stephanie. And hello, everybody. It's Michaela. And for this special episode, we are sitting down with Vivian Yoon to discuss her K-pop podcast with LAS Studios called K-pop Dreaming. What's up, Vivian? Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. But before we dive in, guys, don't forget to join the K-pop cast community on Slack and sign up for hard-hitting editorial on our newsletter. Links to all of that in the episode description. So hi, Vivian. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hi. Yeah, so we in uh, preparing for this episode, we we got your your bio. So you're Vivian Yoon, a, a Korean American writer performer from Los Angeles, currently developing a few series. But we're here to talk about your show, K-pop Dreaming. Yes. So the the elevator pitch that we saw for it was it's considering her many years of standing first generation K-pop boy bands, HOT, and sporting skinny bangs and highlights through grade school. It's a story she has been researching her entire life. <laughs> so would you would you say that that's the accurate representation of, of the show? Like how how else would you would you introduce that? Oh, okay. I think that was part of like my personal bio in mm-hmm. talking about the show. Um the actual show, let's see, it it examines K-pop through the lens of like the Korean diaspora in Los Angeles. So, mm-hmm. you know, the podcast is really about the rise and history of K-pop. And then we do Um, it's sort of like a half deep dive on Korean history and Korean American history that has impacted and shaped the music. And then half the story of like my life growing up alongside, um, the genre in the nineties and two thousands in Koreatown in LA. Mm, So would you say the original pitch was more that you wanted to research and share about K-pop and then it became more personal, like you started to see yourself as part of the the story more, or did you always want to have you know the personal be upfront? Um, I actually didn't create the show. The mm. show creator was our producer Fiona Ng at LAS Studios, and um, she was the one who really came up with the idea of creating a podcast series about K-pop. You know really from the perspective of like the Korean American community in Los Angeles. So that was like completely her idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she was looking for a host, a Korean American host from LA. And we got connected. And as soon as we started working on the podcast, it became clear like, oh yeah, we should try to interject like some of my personal experience. But I, beyond the first episode, um, I didn't think that there would be like a ton of me to include. Mm -hmm. And then as we kept going and researching Mm. for the different episodes, uh, yeah, more and more of like my life and family stories started um, becoming a part of the show. Yeah, I remember a specific example that your parents actually met in Itaewon. Like in the yeah. clubbing district in the, in the episode that you were talking about the history of of that area and how like, um, yeah, we, we, we can get more into the details. But I was just like, wow, that's like divinely orchestrated that you're researching this and you find that your parents have a deep connection to the topic. And that's exactly, exactly how it really happened. Like it was such an organic surprise. Would you say then that this project has been much more of like a, a personal, I don't know, self-discovery. Like when you, when you show it to people, are you, are you still, do you feel vulnerable about like letting them into your life? Mm. <laughs> you know, that's so, 
It's so interesting because like I've had people kind of come up to me or DM me and they're like, wow, it's so brave of you to put (laughs) yourself out there. And I'm like, Uh wait, do I appear like, you know what I mean? It's like, am I naked? And like, (gasps) nobody's telling me, like, I I don't know. So for me, it didn't feel um, that vulnerable until people started telling, like asking me, do you feel vulnerable? And then I started to feel like, wait, wait. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Take it back. Yeah, but when in the process of like actually writing the show and like, you know, recording the show, it didn't feel that way to me. It just felt like what is the most authentic way that I can tell this story? Um, What's a way that we can like make these historical concepts like really personal? And for Mm -hmm. me, since I don't come from like a journalism or reporting or an academic background, like we talked to like professors and things like that. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I do not have that kind of expertise or like authority or credibility. So the only way that I can sort of bring authenticity is to talk about my own real life experiences because, you know, nobody can tell you that your memories are wrong. (laughs) Like nobody Mm. can tell you that like your life moments and experiences um, that they're not authentic. And they bring this kind of like, yeah, authority and authenticity to storytelling in um, in a way that like, I don't know how else we would have been able to do that. And so that's sort of why it happened that way. I really like that. It reminds me actually of an episode of the K-pop cast we did a while ago where we interviewed uh, Dexter, the host, the, the, the vice reporter who reported on the Tableau scandal yeah. in the series called Authentic. And um, yeah, so the the title is called Authentic of that series. And Dexter spoke at length about how, um, you know, this idea of objectivity and neutrality in journalism is like pretty fake. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not real. All we have is our personal, authentic memories and truth. And what 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 is often sold as like objective journalism is like I'll I'll just say the the white Western colonial male perspective, right? And so to hear this series where you got very personal and were like, "This is what I learned. This is what my parents saw and heard." Um, it was it was relieving almost in a um, in a world of of stories that where the reporter tries to have have a voice from nowhere. You heard of that concept? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, it's that idea of objectivity is really interesting because like I have never um, attempted to be objective about anything in my life. Like (laughs) I feel like my entire life I've just had opinions and like wanted to share my opinions on things. But yeah, so I was like really aware of the fact that like I am not like Dexter, you know, I'm not a reporter. Mm. And so I, I never had to really claim objectivity the only thing is that like LAist is public radio so yeah. LAist studios is like the podcasting arm of LAist 89.3 um KPCC in LA mm-hmm. and so because it's public radio and because it's journalism we were reporting facts and every episode was like very very thoroughly fact checked mm. so that's sort of where like the objective like journalism part came into it um, but in terms of like framing the actual stories, it was a hundred percent from my experience as a screenwriter, which is like, how do you make this as least boring, like the least boring as possible, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do I make this as fun so that people want to keep listening? And I think, yeah, 
having a goal of like making stuff fun is very, very different from making stuff like objectively. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I don't necessarily go to NPR for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are definitely shows that do do that. Mm. But in terms of like reported limited series, you know, podcast, it's got to be fun. (laughs) Otherwise people will like turn it off. Yeah. So so which which episode? We've got the whole list of episodes here for all of our listeners who want to check out K-pop dreaming. Um, Vivian here covered topics like the history of trot music, the roots of rap, like history of Koreatown, origins of K-pop and an interview with Danny from one time. There's just like all of this really interesting, juicy stuff. But I'm curious, Vivian, which of these episodes would you say was the most fun that just had you like laughing and entertained? The most fun would probably be the second episode mixtape. Just because it has my friends from childhood in it. Yeah. Like my friends, Sarah and Randy, who I grew up with. um, We hear from them throughout the episode as we track like, kind of the history of modern K-pop from the 1990s all the way till now. And then we look at how the music changed and what groups were popular and all the different generations of K-pop while tracking like where I was in my life and where I was with my friendships with Sarah and Randy. So that one was the most fun for me to listen back to just because Mm -hmm. I could hear the three of us like having such a good time. But the one that I... I feel like I'm the most proud of, I guess, in terms of like taking a bunch of historical information that could have been really dry and I think like could have been super boring. And instead, like the team put together this like really engaging episode was Trot. Mm. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. I was about to say. Because for me, that that one, I think, is my favorite episode of the series. Yeah, one, because mm-hmm. I also got into Mr. Trot. You did. <laughs> I was so into that show. I, I describe it as the, there's no other there's no other show where you can have these cute little babies singing love songs about heartbreak they've never had. I and know. guys dancing on poles, shirtless, and oh. doing bat flips with perfect pitch. Like, <laughs> It was such a dynamic show, but then also it was such a great introduction to the genre of of Korean music that I had only had a few references for, but never had really experienced. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, Mr. Trot was so, so, so big. And it's true. There was, what is it? There was another show that kind of reminds me of it a little bit. They're not similar at all, but there was this like show, I don't know if it was in the Philippines or something, but it's like Mm. these little kids that dress up like adult, like (laughs) well-known bands and stuff, right? Like there's the three little kids that dress up like the Bee Gees and then sing. Mm. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It was like I think I've seen memes of this show. (laughs) It's worth watching the performance because these little kids are like singing like, you know, the BGs and like wearing wearing like fake beards and mustaches. Oh no. <laughs> and things like that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just seeing just seeing these little boys sing these like epically tragic <laughs> like love mm-hmm. songs. <laughs> it, there is something really really like 
entertaining about it. Right. Totally. But then also with with the episode learning about the history, about like why these songs are so tragic and like how the origins of, of, you know, it comes from first, you know, colonialism, you know, Japanese colonialism in Korea. Yeah. And there was there was a lot of that history that I had never heard before that mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed. And it, it reminded me of kind of like the, the discoveries that I had what, when I first read Pachinko and watched Pachinko for the first time of of these these histories that aren't really talked about as much. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much um growing up in America, I think it's hard it's easy to forget that like every group group of people in the world has their own history mm-hmm. dating back like centuries and millennia essentially. Mm-hmm. And for me, I had known bits and pieces of South Korean and Korean history. But it really wasn't until the Trot and Moon Knight episode where suddenly we had this task of telling, <laughs> telling like the big sweeping moments of Korean and South Korean history and how mm. that affected the music. All of a sudden, I was forced to like create this timeline for other people. Yep. And then in doing that, it's obviously also creating the timeline for myself. And I'm getting to learn all of these things that I didn't know about before. But yeah, like there is so much tragedy in Korean history and that tragedy really does inform Korean entertainment, I think, too. Um, Even when I think about like Mm K-dramas, essentially K-dramas are just like all these insane like reversals and really, really bad and really, really good things happening in like a super condensed period of time. Mm. And I feel like that's exactly what Korean history is, like a bunch of tragic stuff happened in a really, really short amount of time, but people still held on to things like joy and resilience and like outward expression and celebration and all of these different things. So it is interesting how it's reflected in um, art. Yeah. You know, speaking of the um, the Korean history timeline, I was, I was really intrigued by that part of the, the reporting as well. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how you and the team approached that kind of gigantic task of like, all right, we have a ch- we have a chance here on this show to to tell a version of history of the colonial period, the Korean War period, and there's a lot of different narratives, a lot of different sources out there. So, how did you even approach, like? Yeah, I guess how to how to decide between the different narratives that are out there, the different experts. I think the thing that we set out to do was we never wanted to tell an overarching history of mm. South Korean politics. Yeah. I think what we wanted to do was like track how these different geopolitical forces, these big historical movements, how they impacted the music. And so I think that made it really, really... Um, there wasn't a lot of room to actually like wander and look at different things because the goal was so specific. It was looking at this music trot, seeing where it originated and seeing how the political situation of the times impacted the music. Mm -hmm. And then it just so happened that like, you can literally trace all the different moments, you know, the big moments in Korean history um, from the 1930s onward through this through the changes in this music. Um, so it's just like happened to nicely line up that way. Mm. So for us, it wasn't 
super difficult to figure out like what to say and what not to say. It was more about, okay, we have all of this different information. Like what is the most interesting way to present it? Um, and that's where we were really struggling. Um, I actually originally wasn't the writer of all the episodes. Mm -hmm. And it was only after working on the Trot episode where one of the producers had like written a first draft and we had like a group listening session and everybody was like, yeah, this isn't really working. And so mm. I was like, let me take a crack at it. Like, let me take a stab at it because I can imagine a, a different kind of structure. And once I restructured it to like tell this story, how I would tell it to somebody who knows nothing about trout or Korean history, yeah. then everybody was kind of like, okay, I think Vivian should write all the episodes <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like coming from a more personal place. And that's when we like really included my grandma's history yes. and then went back to interview her a second time to get her experiences, like not just with the show, Mr. Trot, but like her experiences during the Japanese occupation and during the Korean war and, and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having your grandmother's perspective and her, her voice, like featuring her voice on there is so uh, such a precious gift for all of us listeners. So th thank you Aww. for yeah, including her for us, for our benefit, really. Oh, that's so nice. She seems really sweet. She is a very unique person. And like, really, I, I wasn't expecting all of those stories to come out of her because like we had grown up like not talking about things like that. And so mm -hmm. when all of these memories just started flowing and she was just sharing all of this stuff, like it was really surprising for me. I think that that leads into our, our first our first question from from Dina. She she asked that you you talk about how important it is to know your history and how it shapes your identity. But from this series, what has been the most interesting or impactful part of your family history that you learned while making it? I think the thing that really stood out to me, it wasn't just like one moment or one moment of discovery or one fact. It was really talking to my grandma and my mom and, you know, texting with my dad. I was suddenly hit with a sense that like history matters because it's shaped each of our lives in like very real ways, you know, um, like towards the end of the series, I have this revelation that like all of these geopolitical forces that shaped K-pop and shaped Korea are the same forces that shaped me and my family. You know, even things like how my grandparents ended up immigrating to Los Angeles in the 1970s, you know, that was a result of the aftermath of the Korean War. And, you know, my dad growing up in the States and then joining the U.S. Army and then like being stationed in South Korea where he met my mom in Itaewon, like all of that was possible because of the politics at the time, right? Because the U.S. was stationed all throughout South Korea, because the Korean War never ended, like all of these things lead to very real decisions that people make to upend their lives and immigrate to a new country or, you know, to join the military, like all of these things that have such huge consequences, like we're all bound by these forces that are bigger than us. And I think for me, that was really moving because growing up in America and learning sort of like white American history, and even, you know, it feels like American history is sort of presented as like being very white 
And then there's like a parallel story about like slavery and Jim Crow. And then you get sure. like this civil rights in the 1960s. And then it's a, it's a very like literally black and white dichotomy. Black and white. Mm. Right. And and there's less emphasis on other minorities um, and how they fit into American history. And so for me, I always felt like removed or detached from that history as if it didn't include me somehow. Mm-hmm. But after seeing, you know, South Korean history and Korean American history and realizing like I also have a place, my family has a place in these larger narratives that people literally study in school. Our stories do matter. Like, that was really, really powerful for me. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah, just being able to connect your individual story to your family lineage to the larger, longer history of a civilization, a people that have been around thousands of years is, I'm sure, just like empowering like you feel like I, I'm just imagining or I, I feel myself that I have these ancestors at my back now. You know, I have this community, this culture. You're not just cut off. You're not just floating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It really does root you in something that feels bigger mm-hmm. and that feels like it is outside of yourself. And it feels important in a way that like I think a lot of Asian Americans um, in this country are not made to feel that their history is important or has the same weight as white American history. So that was, yeah, that was really surprising for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious just personally, have you had any kind of like personal political evolution, I guess? Have you, have, would you say that you become more political, politic, po- politicized or even radicalized through this project or not you don't think of that as I think like maybe in very specific ways um Mm -hmm. so like our roots of rap episode Mm -hmm. it takes a look at the tensions between the black American community in south central LA and the Korean merchants who set up businesses there in the Mm -hmm. late 80s and early 90s and how some of that tension like really came into a head during the LA uprising or the LA riots of 1992. And we kind of take a look at how some of that tension was explored in like this Ice Cube song called Black Korea from Mm -hmm. back then, where he basically like makes a threat to like burn down Korean stores. And then a few months later, like that's exactly what happens during the riots. And it's really interesting because for that episode, we interviewed this Korean activist named Jay Lee Wong, who was part of the Black Korean Alliance, something called the Black Korean Alliance, which like attempted to bridge relations between the two communities back Mm. then, like in the 80s and early 90s. And I spoke to her son, Ryan Lee Wong, who, or Ryan Wong, who wrote this book called Which Side Are You On? Mm. And it's a novel and it's based on his own experience as like a young activist you know, during, during like a very famous case of like police brutality, where it was like a, um, an Asian American police officer had shot Mm. and killed a Kai girly, right. A a black man. So it, it was really through my conversation with Ryan. I think that some of my ideas around activism and allyship have changed because his, his big thing is like, 
you cannot be an effective ally without knowing your own history, without knowing the history of your own people. Mm. And so many times in this country, like we, we jump to help the most urgently oppressed um, in a situation, which in our country is like black people and then brown people, right? Like Asian Americans are not facing like the same level of oppression and in and in not like such a life or death kind of way, which I think is really, really, really important mm-hmm. to acknowledge. But at the same time, like Asian Americans like have not been given space in American history and in American spaces. And and it's really important for us to like claim that space for ourselves in order to be better allies. So that's like one thing that kind of came to mind, I guess, when you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what I was thinking about was the the episode going into the the Cape Town riots and how that that event was probably a really politicizing moment for plenty of like a lot of people that were living in those communities at the time. I grew up in L.A. I was really young at the time. I don't remember, but my parents remember, right? Oh, you grew up in LA? I sure did. Yeah, oh, like what Inglewood, part? Inglewood area. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then like I got into K pop when I was like fourteen. So I was hanging out in K Town like as often as I could. What? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What? Yeah. Wait. We have to what? talk about that. That's so <laughs> <Really>? cool. <laughs> when were you like what year? Yeah. So that was like the early to mid two thousands. Wow, um, that's really early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gr- growing up in LA, I had a lot of Korean friends at my school. I went to LA Center for Enriched Studies, LACES. I don't know if you You went to LACES. <laughs> okay, so many Koreans at LACES. Yes, exactly. Okay, so it's okay, like I couldn't I couldn't sense. help. I couldn't help but be exposed oh, to interesting. K-pop and Korean culture. So you probably went to high school surrounded by like more Koreans than I did because I Maybe, went to yeah. LA High. Mm, and oh yeah, there were not a lot of Koreans. Not as many. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's so yeah. interesting. <laughs> wow. OG. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I I like to say I I came up in K-pop in the the golden age. Yes. Like around <laughs> like the transition from first to second generation. It's yeah, just like yeah. gold, right? <laughs> Literally called the golden age of K-pop. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. We talk about that a lot on the show. And I, I grew up going to the the Hollywood Bowl every year, the Korean music festival. Oh wow. The big one. Yeah. Wow. So much fun. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that I guess I had a personal connection to some of the stories and things you're mentioning on the podcast. Yeah, I was like, I, was, I, I grew up in LA. I was I was in there. Yeah, I was curious what you thought, especially about that the the Koreatown episode, Stephanie, since you have such a personal connection. Yeah, yeah. You know, like for me, you know, I I really like what you said that you got out of the the book, the which side are you on, and mm-hmm. Ryan's Ryan's perspective on allyship, and I would even take it a step further mm-hmm. um, that you know before even trying to help someone else, it's it's imperative. It's it's not it's not just like a nice to have. It's really important to preventing harm in that relationship to know your positionality and your history. Yes. To know like that you're not like a neutral 
actors showing up like you didn't just get here for no reason. Yeah. Right. There there are things about the Asian American positionality that need to be like acknowledged and the history of like why <laughs> you know, why why are we having tension in the first place? Where did this right. come from? It's not because both groups just hate each other, right? It's not and it's not just because of oh, different cultures cultural differences need to learn more about each other's cultures I, right. I i'm really frustrated by by that kind of narrative but um the way we really build solidarity is by recognizing oh yeah this part of my history this part of my story my oppression is just like just like yours in a way the essence of how we're both oppressed yeah is what we need to get at because like you know, I, I, I could go on and on about this, but even even the idea that white and Asian folks are more privileged or have better lives, it's like not necessarily just oppression looks right. different. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're held to a standard, like a really narrow standard of behavior, that's oppression, too. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I feel like I feel like you might like this book because okay. um, a big part of it you know, in, in the book, like the main character sort of resembles like Ryan when he was younger. And then Mm -hmm. the character in the book, like also talks to his mom, who was an activist in the eighties and early nineties, like, just like Ryan's real life mom, right? Jaylee Mm -hmm. Wong, who was part Mm -hmm. of the Black Korean Alliance. And like the thing that she really, really hammers home for him is like, you need to take care of yourself. Like self-care is radical. And how important that is in the fight. And like, it's not just about like cultural differences, but like really specific histories and how they play into each other without people being aware. And that's something I wish we had more time to talk about Mm -hmm. um, in some of these episodes, because something that I was talking about with Ryan and Jay Lee were the idea that like so much of the tension did it didn't it was it didn't just come from like cultural and language no. barriers but it really was a lack of understanding of each other's history and how mm. like the stereotypes um that each group had of each other ca- really came from not understanding where the other was coming from because korean immigrants who were new to america had no idea uh the history of like slavery and jim crow and like all of this oppression that black people faced and like why like the crack epidemic was happening um, in the 80s, like why these neighborhoods were impoverished and how the system... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll like- take that a step further that when when folks are invited to immigrate to the U.S., they like they are given a version of history that says Black people are at the bottom because they deserve it. Because like it's their fault. It's their culture. It's their, you know, there's something about them that, you know, they had a chance to succeed. They had an opportunity, but look at them, they squandered it. Right. Right. So there so there's there's a difference between this didn't know, totally oblivious, and like, eh, actually I think it's kind of their fault. Da da da. Um that yeah, I just just want to like push it a little further, you know. Yeah. Um I think but it's yeah, different. To your point, mm-hmm, yeah. It's definitely different for every person, but like I think you're absolutely right of like these like actively negative and harmful ideas that they initially stem from ignorance. And then that there is a prevailing. We talked about like the white history being taught 
in the U.S. That's just like in the right. air. It's in the it's in the movies. It's in the books. It's like right everywhere. The news. Oh my gosh, the news coverage of how every crime is committed by a black person, quote unquote. But for Korean immigrants who don't speak the language and newly immigrated when they were in their 30s and 40s and weren't seeped in American history, like they also kind of come to like similar conclusions just based on like surface level observations in the community. And I think that really did stem from ignorance, like I think, Uh Um, because those people like they they came not knowing how to speak English and having no interactions with like white mainstream society, I would say. Mm. And then on the other side, the black community also had no idea of like why Koreans were immigrating to the U.S. in the first place, like the effects of colonialism and U.S. occupation and the military presence in South Korea and how like the Korean War was essentially started by like these massive powers that like decided to split the country up um and all of these things and how like this giant wave of immigration that happened in the 70s and 80s was you know part of the aftermath of the korean war the destruction like how everybody lost everything like at the same time like it's Mm -hmm. both communities that are unaware and ignorant of each other's history and back then like there was no language played against each other yes 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 and then and then you know white media does its thing to like pit the different communities oh, yeah. against each other and like frame the narrative as like one versus the other, mm-hmm. um, which is really extra, extra unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, totally. But those are all things that like we definitely like wanted to talk about in the podcast, but you just, you just can't include everything, you know? No. Yeah. There's so many layers just as we're both getting at, right? You'd have yeah. to you'd have to like do justice to each group's stories and inter- interview interview some of the people who were involved in the protests, for example. Yes. Like you'd have to really see, well, what what were you feeling and why? And yeah. What was Which going on there? Deserves to be its own, mm-hmm. you know, series and yeah. not just like us um trying to do that. You like we- thirty bonus episodes and <laughs> that. <laughs> I know. A previous a previous version of the episode, like we did talk to, you know, somebody who was like there in Koreatown, um, mm-hmm. kind of defending the neighborhood. And it was just clear that like, we can't, we can't do this in a show that's about music. Like um. we sort of have to stick to how all of this affected the music. But mm. I'm curious, Stephanie, to know too, like if you went to Lasis and there were yeah. a bunch of Koreans, they must, like so many of them must've been listening to hip hop and rap. Oh, totally. Like, how did you feel about that like did that ever make you bristle or cringe mm, no no not really I, I was like hook line and sinker into k-pop you know yeah and <laughs> it, yeah I, I don't remember being really conscious or aware of that as a as a harmful or appropriative dynamic when I was that age right no I, I, I do remember there's almost like a uniform that all the Korean American guys would come in yes. bag, baggy white tees and yes. jeans, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was totally like borrowed from, from black hip hop fashion. Right. And, and same for the, the Korean American girls would come in like tight white t-shirts, big hoop earrings. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
I think hearing that kind of like personal experience of like, this is just how it was back then yeah, is kind of helpful because for people who didn't maybe grow up among these, alongside these communities and like nowadays the concept of like appropriation versus appreciation mm. is so big and it's so easy to look back and say this is right and this is wrong yeah but when you're in the moment you know 20 years ago it's a little different um, I think a lot of us are just um I mean at, especially at that age going to school we are we are so invested in fitting in Mm-hmm. with and and like fashion is a part of that music is a part of that it's always to to get validation and social connection like we're not I, I personally was not thinking about larger cultural significance of any of this stuff I was like this group wears these clothes okay noted if I want <laughs> if I want to fit in maybe I should buy these shoes <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. I mean at, at the same time I was really I was I will say painfully aware of how lacking in certain markers of like black culture I was and my fashion was Mm. and the way I talked was like I was made to feel that way Mm. um but I, I I tell this story a few times on the podcast that because because I was black I was I was a at least somewhat black uh I found a kind of kinship or relationship with the Korean Americans on on that level. Like we both liked hip hop and Mm -hmm. and black culture in a way. And K-pop sounded so much like R&B and other black black music styles that it was just like a, a perfect fit for me to move on over there and see what that was about yeah and it it worked and it was beautiful and it was fun until it wasn't well what was it like for you in like LA high you being like not not in the majority in high school like I still really identified or I wanted to identify with whiteness Mm -hmm. so like all the music and movies Um, And things that I consumed were, like, very, very white. And then LA High is, like, (laughs) it had no, like, true, like, waspy kids. Like, there were zero. Oh, okay. um, Got it. At LA High. (laughs) Yeah, like, the closest you had to, like, white kids were we had a couple, like, Jewish kids. And then we had um, some, like, Eastern European kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Ukrainians, Russians, Armenians. um, But we didn't have that you know, very like waspy kind of white kid at our school. And for me, it was really tough because like hip hop and rap and, and then things like reggaeton, right? Like those are like Mm -hmm. the dominant um, musical genres and culturally, like I was just not at the same place that a lot of other kids were. So I felt really alienated. Like I felt like an outsider Mm. um, because I didn't know a ton of people who like, like the same, you know, white, (laughs) white things (laughs) that I did. Um, Mm. But yeah. K-pop, right? K-pop, like I always associated K-pop with like more Korean Koreans, you know, Mm -hmm. in quotes kids who are a lot more connected to Korean culture than I was. And I would never, ever, ever have called myself a K-pop fan back then. Mm. Um, Just because the social status, it like for a lot of Korean Americans, like liking K-pop was just not cool. 
Mm. And so I definitely stayed really, really far away from it publicly, at least. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I and who feel like the, that's changed. I'm, yeah, go, I, I was I was going to say back then, who considered it not cool? Who specifically? Yeah, I think other Korean American kids considered it mm-hmm. not cool. Yeah, you know, it was like us. We decided within our own community that there was a hierarchy, and the more Americanized you were, the more cool you were. And mm. I think a lot of times too, like within Korean American circles. It wasn't like the more white you were. It was Mm-mm. sort of like the gangster kids who were yeah. closest to blackness <laughs> were the coolest, you know? Oh, yeah. And that was all tied in with like gang culture and things like that. But we also spoke with like a historian who kind of mentioned this thing about how like hip hop being popular in K-Town, you have to realize that historically K-Town has never been majority Korean. Like yeah. demographically, it was always more people from, you know, Latin countries. Yeah. And I didn't know that actually. Oh, I, really? I, I, I never knew that K-Town had never been majority Korean, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. But like, if you look at LA, the way the neighborhoods are situated and like how close all these different demographics and communities are together and how Korean kids are going to school with black and brown kids and mm. the assimilation of culture is sort of like inevitable. And like, I don't know. It's it's all super interesting and fascinating. We couldn't really get into like why Korean American kids like identified with hip hop so much and the messages of like being an outsider and being ignored by the system. Like why mm-hmm. why did the Korean American community um re- why did that resonate so much? You know, mm-hmm. and I I still can't say that I have like all the answers, but in my gut, I just know that 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 was true. Mm. You know, based on my own experience. Well, did you make a shift at some point to being more interested in hip hop or? Oh, yes. Yeah. Totally. In high school, like I straight up remember being at homecoming and like dancing to Soldier Boy, like Ooh. doing oh, doing yeah. the dance and like everybody staring oh, at me. And it was move. like me. Yeah. Yeah. And like me and my other Korean girlfriend, we were like dressed up as um, schoolgirls because we were trying to be like sexy or whatever. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And like, I just remember all the like cool black kids started calling us Tokyo Drift. Hey, and that's a compliment. I loved it. I loved it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was like really fun. But yeah, it was definitely going to LA High. And I started discovering like, I really loved like NOS and mm-hmm. Tribe and like, yeah. you know, more more like philosophical poetic lyricists conscious exactly yeah. <laughs> and like the word it was the same time that i was discovering tableau too. oh yeah oh totally um yeah. and the parallels between that and i was like this and is ta- the kind tableau of love nas nas is like his yeah. favorite yeah yeah and you can totally see the influence where like the message the lyrics the wordplay the empowering you know like all all of that um mm-hmm. that that's sort of when i was really I, I I finally um yeah stopped like trying not to like hip hop. Um <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like, all like, right, oh. I surrender, I'll let yeah. it in. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Like going back to, to how, how Korean Americans felt about K pop. I, I really enjoyed your, your KCON episode and I remember going around KCON and like talking to a lot of the Korean and Korean American people who are working at the event and how they were so surprised to see so many like non 
Asian people, non-Korean people interested in things like Hallyu. So with where Korean pop music is today, as far as like on the international stage, do you, how do you think Korean Americans feel about K-pop? Do you think there's still in, in that, that same kind of like secret of fan stage or do you think they're, that's changed? I can only speak for like the people I know personally, like the Korean Americans that, you know, I talk to and I think the attitude that my friends, Sarah, Randy, and I have at the beginning of the podcast, which is like, surprise, like why now? Um, I think that's still a pretty big question for a lot of Korean Americans. It's like a mixture of pride and I don't understand like (laughs) how this happened. (laughs) And it feels weird that this thing that like we were ashamed of when we were younger is now like accepted and embraced and celebrated by so many people around the world. Like that is a weird thing. And then at the same time, a little bit of resentment, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's like totally, totally present in a lot of Korean American circles of like, why are you guys allowed to like this now? Mm. Um, and we weren't. Mm. So I, I think like there are a lot of, you know, feelings and complicated things wrapped up into it um, for a lot of different people. And for me, it really, really was just working on this podcast that helped mm-hmm. me come to the other side, especially after the KCON, going to KCON and, and experiencing what it's really like and having that resentment sort of dissolve. And it, it really just faded away Um after seeing like how genuine people's love for the music was. Yeah, that's the best part about KCON. Because <laughs> if, you, if you're if you a K-pop fan and you're only a K-pop fan online, you oh, can man. see a lot of the toxic parts of the community. But every, every person that I talked to, every person who was working there as a vendor or who was part of the event, they were, they, they always said how, how surprised they were that how how nice everybody was and how yeah. how open and excited and and uh, genuine that their interactions were with people when they were at the convention. It's so true. Everyone is so sweet and nice, and everybody. I don't know. It's just like one of the most welcoming feeling communities ever. And yeah, I was going to say something and I just forgot about something you said. Oh, oh, in the KCON episode, we kind of mm-hmm. talk about like the first ever KCON. Mm. And one of the people who was helping organize that was talking about how like fans showed up and waited in line so long outside that the fire marshal was like, hey, you have to open your doors early because this right. is a fire hazard. <laughs> and and then when they did, like the event was not ready. They weren't set up and all the fans just went inside. And then the K-pop fans helped to like, keep everybody in line and organized and we're like on the side of the organizers and I was like that is so great because that's exactly the same vibe and feeling I get now where like if something were to fall through like k-pop fans would be the first to try and keep things good and okay Mm -hmm. and like you know it's just like a really nice detail Mm -hmm. 
That was my favorite interview with with Angela Kaloran, the the former CEO oh, yeah, Angela. of yeah. CJ E&M America. Yeah, CJ like, America. That, oh, wow. That's such a cool interview because I I have so many questions I would love to ask her. So mm. I, it was it was great that there were there were a lot of people that you interviewed. I'll be honest in that in your show that I was like, oh, I wish we could talk to them too. <laughs> I was like, oh, kind of like taking notes of like other people that we might want to reach out. To. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Please go for it. I love that. That's so good. I was just at a, um, I was at a K-pop slash K-hip-hop party, DJed by our very own DJ Peter Lowe, shout out. <laughs> he's he's one of our hosts yeah. here on the K-pop cast. And it was like a packed show in Oakland. And I, to, to, your, to your point, I don't think I could visually identify a single Korean person at the really? party. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't, can't be sure, of course, I didn't see everyone and you can't just tell, you know, but it was mostly like non-Asian people wow. at the party straight up. And that's that's what I've been seeing at the the parties recently as a, the concerts, even mm-hmm. as we just go go more and more into the future. I'm seeing and I yeah, I guess. How do you feel about that? That as there's more and more K-pop exposure and shows and parties, um, and may- maybe that hasn't been your experience going to events, but um, I'm seeing fewer Koreans, fewer Asians as a proportion. Yeah, I think that's sort of been my experience with yeah. K-pop fans or the fandom from like, you know, I would say 2012 or 13 onward. Mm-hmm. Just what like, does that mean or how do we feel about that? Yeah. I wasn't sure how to feel about it, but it's really interesting because I think K-pop's biggest audiences are like Koreans in Korea Mm. and then non-Koreans in America. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this feeling that I have of like, when you grow up with a certain kind of music it's sort of like, you know, it's nothing special or like mm. it's nothing to go like goo goo gaga over, I guess, because it's such a like just a normal part of the fabric of our lives mm-hmm. as opposed to here's this new thing that I discovered. Mm. Um, and I think there's like a sort of it's it's just experiencing the music through a different lens. Um, yeah. So it it's not surprising to me that the music appeals so much to people who didn't actually grow up with it. Mm-hmm. Um being like a super normal part of their lives because I don't know. I feel like that's like with a lot of um, fan experiences, it's like something that you discover at a really special time in your life that ends up having a lot of meaning as opposed to something that you've heard in the background every single day of your life since you can remember, right? There's like a Mm, really big difference. And so I think that's part of it, but also like, yeah, just seeing the rise of, um, in the number of like non-Koreans hanging out in Koreatown. Yeah. That I think was more surprising to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that, you know, that's totally linked to the rise of K-pop. Yep. It's just, it's just really interesting. And I'm still a little surprised because I'm like, you like it that much? <laughs> you guys like Korean barbecue that much? Like, oh, you love K-Rows this much? Um But people do. And that love is like very, very real, you know? Mm. I think that's what I was most surprised by was like how deep that love really is. 
Mm-hmm. Yo, I mean, Michaela just uh, reported on the first, well, not the first, but uh, the first K-pop concert in a long time to be hosted in Fresno, where Michaela Fresno? Is. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm based in Fresno. That's where I'm from. <laughs> my dad's family, my dad's from Fresno. Oh, mm. see, we do have a connection. Yeah. Even I'm not from LA. Like, I can't, I can't relate to all the stories, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, wow. Michaela. Yeah, why don't why don't you share like the the demographics that you saw at the at the K-pop concert? Oh gosh. Um, well, that's that's the thing about Fresno is that we're 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 also like like Los Angeles, like uh, the Bay Area. We have we have a very wide demographic of people. I was I was just thinking about how you you met the, the you met the main organizers of the TAN fan club. Mm-hmm. who like flew out from the west coast from the east coast from the east coast they flew out from like north carolina yeah from Atlanta, all over like all over mm-hmm. but I, I i definitely would agree now that i'm thinking about it as far as like the demographic of of if, if we're specifically looking at like asian people or korean people there there were more you know latino people or black people or white people if we were to like break it down like that mm-hmm. then i would say in at that concert Wow. Fresno. I know, right? <laughs> right? Fresno's on the map. I'm telling you. Yeah. The next this is a perfect example K-pop for, destination. For anybody who's never heard of Fresno, why it's so miraculous. Yeah, Vivian's reaction was there. great. Fresno? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Wow. K-pop has come a really long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. We, we probably don't have time to get into it today, but I think we're, mm-hmm. we're like approaching the cliff of starting to talk about how there's, there's a, an, there's a Korean community of K-pop fans. And then there is a Weigugin foreigner mm-hmm, right. <laughs> global mm-hmm. fan community. And like, who is K-pop catered to? What are, what are the foreigners getting out of it that, like what, <laughs> you know, that like what reasons are they coming to it? What do they want? How are they different? Then are they at odds or are they then that that could just be a whole other discussion. But there's there's so many layers to it. It's it's complex. And there's there's feelings there as well, which we're starting to touch on. Like, how does it feel to look around and like, huh, there's like no Koreans here. But this is a K-pop show, a K-pop mm-hmm. concert. There were Koreans years ago. You know, I remember um, one of my first K-pop concerts I went to was, oh gosh, was it 2005 YG Family World Tour in mm. LA? And literally my my mom and I showed up at the venue for the concert and the the people checking tickets were like, uh, you're not at the right place. Oh, there's, no. there's a, the Brian McKnight concert is no. two blocks away. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. And there was like language barrier too, like with what he was saying. But yeah. I, I, I knew just a little bit of Korean and I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we we should be here. I'm here for YG. YG. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. And we, I looked around the stadium and there was like, on, not just only Asians, only Koreans. You know, just straight up. It's so interesting that like, okay, so obviously that sucks. And I'm, 
I'm oh, sorry. It's, it's but funny. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's like the the organizers and the fans and everybody like back then assuming that no one else would be interested in this music. Like, mm. why would they? Yeah. But when you look at the people who actually created these groups like mm. when you look at YG and SM mm. they were internationally focused like from the 90s oh yeah and I think that's something that like me I'm not sure like how much of that gets talked about in mm. like this kind of discourse where it's like no they wanted to reach the rest of the world it was, it was no just limited accident. yeah it was just limited to Asia because like we didn't have the internet um, mm-hmm. back in the late nineties and the early two thousands to like make that possible. But the like, like, hey, but <laughs> once, once like soompy.com came, yeah. this game <laughs> over, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. Soompy. Yes. Yeah. I used to work there. <laughs> oh, you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. So you really saw the growth first. Oh yes. I, yes. Mm-hmm. I had a front row seat. I worked at Soompy. I worked at Vicky. Oh my gosh. It's like part, part of the wave. I was wow. like hand holding. <laughs> It's, it really, yeah. And I just think that like the internet made it so that other people could discover this music that had no other way of like, um, crossing Mm. the barriers otherwise, but like. And, and we, we really owe it to Korean Americans in LA for painstakingly translating every word. Oh yes. Every lyric for (laughs) for bringing the tapes from Korea (laughs) to LA and uploading it. Like yeah, the the founder of Soompi, Susan Kang being one of them, who would just Mm -hmm. like stay up all night translating. Really? Yeah. And that's why the rest of us fans don't know the struggles. (laughs) You don't. You really don't. (laughs) That makes so much sense. Yeah. Jeez, now I wish I talked to you before oh. we wrote the podcast. Oh, we'll just <laughs> so like, oh, I would have loved to talk about that somewhere, you know? That well, would have been love, really cool. We'd love to have you back on, Vivian. Yeah. Like, this oh is not to be the only time. There's so I, many yeah. episode ideas. I would love, love to learn more about that because yeah. it's, it's true. Like, Korean Americans, you know, as bridges between both yeah. worlds, just like in the very, very small, tangible ways, like translating. Mm. I, I just want to know more about that because that must have been happening like with tons of people all over mm-hmm. on this really, really tiny scale that ended up like helping to push the boulder, which like then rolled yes. down the hill. Yes, yes, exactly. Like reaching a critical mass. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And the whole like fan subbing culture is like birthed from, yeah, and anime and also, yeah, K-drama fan subbing. Yes, yes. I, (laughs) those videos are always like so, um, I'm just like always so impressed. Right. By the level of like care and attention. I just think like fan creativity is so impressive to me. Yeah, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it when someone is truly just passionate and feel, feels a responsibility and a duty to like do right. Yeah. I, project. right now I'm like really enjoying all the, on TikTok, the like mm. Taeyang's Yorobun oh my meme God. is like resurfacing. And I'm like, <laughs> I love it. They went on to the Pishik show and one of the members did like an opera version of that. Oh, oh no. <laughs> my God. I love I so love far. all of it and all the memes like mm-hmm. elevates it, elevates it. I love it. Thank mm-hmm. you, Internet. 
Yeah. <laughs> so Speaking have, of. Yeah, go, I, I know what you're going to say, Michaela. Go for it. <laughs> well, no, I was just because, because, you know, you mentioned about your, your first gen fandom, but through the process of doing this series, have you gotten any of, into any of the newer gen groups, like third gen, fourth gen? And yeah. If, you know, who? Um, I'm a pretty big, like, J-Hope fan now, and oh. I really love New Jeans, um, just mm-hmm. because, like, in that Trot episode of the podcast, we talked to the producer 250, who, like, produced, you know, all of New Jeans' like, hit songs, and hearing him talk about, like, the bong in the music, this, like, elusive musical element right, we sort right. of explain in the show, um, hearing him talk about the different elements that are at play in New Jeans music and knowing that like he also, you know, when he was younger, he went to Itaewon to like be close to hip hop and buy hip hop gear and 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 hearing all about that like really adds a level of depth and dimension to the group that so like I I just love their songs mm-hmm. um and the music and I think it New Jeans also is throwing back to like older R&B that I really like. Mm-hmm. Oh, like yes. their harmonies are so like 90s R&B to me that yes. it's so like I get so much like Belle Biv DeVoe from them. Like yep. I just I just love it. And then I'm really enjoying like Tang's like comeback. Hey. Um, vibe is a bop. Like I love it. Did, have you heard Shung with Lisa, the newest song? Yeah, yeah. Hey. And I was like, dang, Lisa freaking just keeps leveling up. Like, mm-hmm. she's so hot. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I just, like, can't even listen to her rap because I was just, like, looking at her dance. Woo. Yeah, she's a, what, triple threat. She's so, she's one of a kind, seriously. Um, And then, yeah, yeah I of think course, you Blackpink. Would... Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Of course, of course. I think, yeah, just hearing you talk about New Jeans, I think you would enjoy our uh, 2022 end of year episode oh, right. <laughs> in that we gave the ladies a few awards and, and spoke at length about, yeah, how, how we love the same things about them that you do. The harmonies, the yeah. early 2000s, 90s R&B vibe. So yeah, if you have some time, go check out our end of year episode. It's like a new jeans love fest. Oh, I love that. So speaking of like what's new and hot in Korean media, we hear that you've also been keeping up with uh, certain reality shows, dating shows on Netflix. Are there any that have like really caught your attention that you recommend? Oh, I think I watch all the same ones everyone else does, like mm. Singles Inferno and Physical 100. Ah. I love um it's it's really interesting because like I don't love a lot of American reality TV. Same. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but there's just something different and fresh about these Korean ones where like reality TV is so new. Like the American formula for reality TV yep. is so new um, to Korean. I feel like they're doing with these like Korean reality shows the same thing they did with K-pop in the 90s where they're drawing from all these different influences and then like making their own unique thing. Um, which becomes like really addictive in its own way, like like freaking creating molds of your torso Ooh. and then like shattering with a hammer is insane. Oh, like that's man. an insane concept yeah. um, to have as like the motif of your show. But I <laughs> loved it. Like it's so good. They really know how to turn up the drama. Mm-hmm, yeah, sure. it's it's absurd, um, but it works, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I I really love I really love it. Mm. Who was your your bias in Singles Inferno? 
Oh, I think I will always like have to give it up to OG Gia. Like oh. OG. Oh, yeah. Just the like how unbothered she was the entire yep. time. I was like, wow, I Before, aspire to during, that level. and after. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then um, this season, yeah, all the like Dex drama was really fun. I forget his, mm. his real name, but I just oh, know yeah, by his true. YouTuber name now. <laughs> right. I follow him on Instagram. His, his post career after that show has been very interesting Ooh. to follow. <laughs> He's been all over. He has. And I can't. I can't really tell. It's really interesting, too, because, like, Netflix is doing so much, like, crossover and, like, cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pollination with, with like, reality stars because they're mm-hmm. doing that whole, like, um, UDT series with mm-hmm. all the yeah. military guys. And then yeah. they show up in Physical 100 and Singles Inferno. Like, right. They're and that, that the zombie same. show, I think that's on NBC. Wait, what show? There's a, There's also, like, a similar... Like a zombie survival program yes. that oh he was also on. Yeah. As well. So they're doing something really interesting where like these different worlds are crossing over in sort of like a Marvel cinematic universe kind of way mm-hmm. um, where like people are popping up in different things and they all belong to the same universe of like South Korea, Netflix, reality mm-hmm. TV stars who are also crossing over into like Netflix K dramas with, um, Oh, I forgot all of their names now, but um, the actress from Singles Inferno being in the glory. Yes. Oh, so like, he, so yeah, he, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> I recognized Wait. her. I was like, what? Is she really, is that really her? <gasps> yeah. And then like Netflix Korea being aware of that and then, you you know, promoting oh, yeah, both totally the aware. glory and like, it's just, it's just happening on a level that kind of reminds me of K-pop of all the different layers and how mm-hmm. everyone is connected and like within YG, like all the groups are connected. And mm-hmm. it's it's really, really interesting to kind of see that side of it too. It's really it, fun from the fans perspective to pick out, to recognize the Easter eggs. Yeah. And I wish American TV would do that more. Like how mm. many fan... What did I just see the crossover? It was like um, Walter White and Jesse from Breaking Bad. Oh, really? In another show. Nice. Maybe it was a photo of them, maybe with the Always Sunny guys or something. Okay. But it was just like crossovers like that don't really happen in American TV shows anymore. The way they might have done in like the 90s and 2000s with like primetime network shows. Right. But yeah, I think Koreans are really, really good at like giving fans what they want. Oh, yeah. They've proven that, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. That's reminding me of all the the AI covers of K-pop songs that have been going around, where you got like Bruno Mars singing "Hype Boy" or whatever. <laughs> oh my god, I haven't heard those. I have to listen. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't, I don't know if it's just my algorithm, but I feel like I've seen a lot of them where it's like a Western artist performing a K-pop song. Oh, and like the, that kind of crossover, which has been really interesting. I'm so into it. Mm-hmm. What do you think, I mean, about, I guess, AI coming into K-pop? Like we just yeah. saw a press release from Hybe and a teaser that they're going to start releasing music from an AI artist. Yeah, so a person that doesn't exist, it's a, a voice that's made up. They're going to start releasing songs and calling it from an artist. And Espa just released their their album yeah. with a song featuring Novice, their, their AI friend I, I guess yeah, I think you can tell how I feel about it but I'm curious <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah the first thing it sort of makes me think of is 
Hatsune Miku. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I think that came out in the 2000s. And that was like um, a virtual Japanese idol singer mm. who was like completely virtual. She, they would like project, um, yeah, 2D or 3D images of her singing and dancing at concerts. And, yeah. and her voice was also similarly like, it was like software generated, right? It was mm. like a voice bank. Right. And um, or Vocaloid or whatever vocaloid, you call it, vocaloid, yeah, vo- yeah, Vocaloid, uh-huh. yeah. And I think that's sort of what it makes me think of. Of like, oh, we've actually seen a blueprint for this before, but it's just going to be happening on like a way bigger scale. So I'd be interested to see what happens. But it kind of just reminds me of like you know, Koreans in the K-pop industry are very good at taking things that have already existed and then really making it their own and taking it to the next level. So that's sort of where my mind goes, you know, just the way, the same way that like Isuman in creating the first ever boy band HOT, he drew influences from the Japanese idol trainee groups. Like that trainee system is something he borrowed from like Japanese, Japanese trainees. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, everything, there's a lot of, a lot of um, borrowing and building on in K-pop. So none of it is like super surprising to me. I'm just interested because I think, you know, yeah. Anything Hybe does is like, oh, I (laughs) am interested to see like just the level of quality. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that is something to think about, especially given how we we all agree that what K-pop does best is figure out what the fans want and give it to them like tenfold. I don't know if fans are asking for AI artists. Like, I think we, we like the, the human piece, like as, as commoditized as it is, like, that's what we're looking to connect with and consume. So I just wonder what, what are they going for with this? Who, what, what need are they trying to fill? Interesting. I don't know. We'll see. It is interesting because I feel like, you know, people like SM are also constantly thinking of the future and what's next. Yeah. And while they are really good at giving fans what they want, they're also really thinking like they're very future oriented and forward thinking in ways that maybe like fans haven't asked for it yet too, you know, where it's like thinking about things like the metaverse and debuting like virtual idols alongside um, real idols and things like that. Like, I I don't really have a super strong opinion. I'm just like, show Mm -hmm. me. And then if it's good, I'll care. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if it's not, then who cares kind of. Right. But a lot of fans, like they, they, are they speaking out against it? Like they don't like it. Yeah. Pretty much all the comments on that, uh, on that video are like, we don't want AI. We want humans. Really? Mm-hmm. Let, let your existing human trainees debut. Why are oh. you doing that? <laughs> So we'll see. Like if, if really has a master plan, when you- <laughs> I know you have people waiting to be yeah. debuted and you debut an AI. All right. That is really, really interesting. Wow. We'll see. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Let's let's see what they do. They are very smart people, and they know what somebody wants. So yeah, and then if it's trash, then everybody's like, They'll "See, pivot. we were right." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. It'll be yeah. it'll be interesting. 
Indeed. All right. Shall we wrap here, Michaela? Yeah, we covered a lot. Woo! <laughs> I... I don't think I can. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Yeah, all of the Slack questions. Yeah, all of the Slack questions. Perfect. I think that's the priority. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, Vivian, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the K-pop cast. Can't wait till next time. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we covered so many things that I wasn't expecting to talk about, and it's really cool. And hearing about your guys's background and like LA and Fresno yeah. was really exciting. Fresno in the house. <laughs> So I, I loved it. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming. Um, right now, I guess, uh, if there's anything else that you want to promote or just, you know, tell people more about the show and where they can find it. Yeah. So the show um, is actually the second season of an existing show called California Love. The season is called California Love K-Pop Dreaming. Um, you can just search for K-Pop Dreaming wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, like all of the episodes are out now, including three bonus episodes where we, you know, look at how the song Psycho by Red Velvet was made. And and we talk with some academics about um, some other historical things that we didn't mention in this podcast. And we touch on ideas of appropriation and appreciation. But really, the show just chronicles like the history of the music. So if that's something that you're interested in, um, please, please check out the podcast, K-Pop Dreaming by Elias Studios. Any any hints at a season two? Are we? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, and there's plenty of episode ideas we just generated here. Right? I know. I would, love, <laughs> I would love the opportunity to do a season two that's sort of like up to... You know, the forces that be sort of like not my call. If it was Mm -hmm. my call, we'd be working on season two right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's a lot of info in there. And yeah. And if people want to follow me on Instagram, I Mm. post some some like tangential material that's connected to the podcast as well. Yeah. Where can we follow you? Oh, yes. My handle is just my name, Vivian J. Yoon. Okay. Y-O-O-N. Yeah. Well, you can find me on Twitter at sparker2. And I'm at Michaela J. K-pop on Twitter. And you can tweet all of us at the K-pop cast and find us on Instagram at the same handle. Reminder to all listeners to please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about the K-pop cast and about K-pop dreaming. Yeah. Once again, thanks, Vivian. And we'll catch you later. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much.